heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. And today we are talking about the questions people are asking about the COVID and the pandemic response. Why were so many medicines suppressed or blocked in treating COVID at home quickly? Why were so many research studies on early treatment started but then stopped abruptly administratively, not for medical reasons, but administratively with no reason so that they couldn't progress to give us information we needed. Why was all the focus on either mask and mask mandates or lockdowns, closing businesses, small businesses and leaving big boxes open or waiting for the magic bullet of a vaccine somewhere down the road? And, and why weren't our federal agencies on top of starting research studies on early treatment rapidly at the beginning? Why, why are we vaccinating people who've recovered from COVID? We never do that with any other disease. Why are we treating COVID recovered patients as if they were still susceptible and making them be subjected to testing and wearing masks and social distancing, it makes no sense. And why, why don't we look at people who are recovered as having natural immunity? And this is, this is a good thing. All of these are critical questions about this pandemic response. And I wanna explore that today with you. This is Dr. Lee for America, in for Malcolm with today's guest, Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and internal medicine specialist in Dallas, Texas, a world leader in early treatment for COVID-19, and a physician who has personally treated several hundred COVID patients and consulted in the care with many hundreds more for those of us doctors also treating patients early. And he has been a resource to all of us. Dr. McCullough was the expert witness who testified November 29th on early home-based treatment before the U.S. Senate Oversight Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs. He also was called as an expert witness on March the 10th 2021 for the Texas Senate Health and Human Services Committee. And I'd like to share with you a brief clip from that testimony that was about 20 minutes altogether. And we'll link that with the show. Very powerful testimony. I'd like you to hear this short clip. Uh, and I became the lead witness for the U.S. Senate testimony of November 19th, 2020. And the reason why there was Senate testimony is because there was a near total block on any information of treatment to patients, a near total block. 
And so what had happened over time is that we had gotten into a cycle in America uh, of no information on treatment. Patients actually think that the virus is untreatable. And so what happens is they go out to get a diagnosis. I'm a COVID survivor. My wife in the galley is a COVID survivor. My father in a nursing home is a COVID survivor. You get handed a diagnostic test. It says, here, you're COVID positive. Go home. Is there any treatment? No. Is there any resources I can call? No. Any referral lines, hotlines? No. Any research hotlines? No. That's the standard in the United States. And if we go to any one of our testing centers today in, the, in Texas, I bet that's the standard of care. I bet that's the standard of care. No wonder we have had 45,000 deaths in Texas. The average person in Texas thinks there's no treatment. They honestly think there's no treatment. They don't even know about these EUA antibodies. You heard from a 90-year-old gentleman who got bamalivimab. Terrific. Where's the focus? There's such a focus on the vaccine. Where's the focus on people sick right now? Wow. That was powerful, Dr. McCullough. And I heard the rest of the 20-minute testimony, which was equally as powerful. Welcome to today's show. Well, thank you, Dr. Vliet. It's a pleasure to be here. And it was a real honor to testify in the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services this week. Well, what were some of the other points that you were making in that interview? And I want to tie that in with an editorial that you wrote last year as one of the one of the first introductions that that I had actually seen because you published an editorial. Actually, it was just after your medical article in the American Journal of Medicine, August the 8th, 2020. You wrote a powerful editorial, The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccine Development. And I would like for us to explore today some things you and I've been talking about really a bit behind the scenes. Um, It actually looks like to us when you look at all of the suppression of early treatment information, that the fact that there is just no updates, no media commentary, no, no federal, state, or media updates at any time on treatment availability of any type. That, that's just unheard of in medicine. Breaking news is always filled with breaking treatments and options and new developments in treatment, and we have not, none of that. And we've been talking about the fact that the actions of our state and federal public health officials suggest that there's, and and media, suggest that there's actually an undercurrent of intent to do harm. Yet one of our first principles of medicine, you and I know, is do no harm, as Sir Thomas Sydenham wrote extensively about in the 17th century. So, so what's different now? What, what do you think is behind a lot of this? You know, it's hard to know if there's uh, a, a strategic plan or some type of intent or whether or not just some type of dark mindset has set into uh, really so many minds across the world. Uh, when patients go to an urgent care center and they're sick. And this is where the majority of diagnoses are made. And they get a nasal swab and they sit there. And then they get handed a test result and they're COVID positive. 
why aren't patients screaming for treatment? Why aren't, why don't we having rallies demanding better health care? Why do patients basically passively take that test result home and then sit at home for about two weeks before they get progressively more ill? And then they show up to hospitals really as a last resort. And this has happened millions and millions of times in the United States. And then they get put in isolation and roughly a quarter of them die. Why is this such a passive process? I mean, why have we gotten to well over half a million Americans and there's been no march regarding uh, unnecessary death or hospitalization? So I think it's really uh, a, a crisis of, of a mindset that's set in. It's too pervasive. It's, it's simply not that people are clamoring for this and the media is blocking information. That's certainly not helping. But um, I think a lot of what the Senate testimony was, was about getting people activated. So let me take you uh, back to the beginning. So the two medical experts were myself and Dr. Richard Urso from the Texas Medical Center in Houston, who's also been a leader on early treatment. And we sat through six hours of testimony from different departments, from the departments of Medicaid, the departments uh, of Texas responsible for nursing homes, from the Texas Medical Board, from the Texas Medical Association. And I have to tell you, over the course of six hours, regarding this critical testimony and pandemic response, it was largely congratulatory and self-congratulatory regarding personal protective equipment, regarding having enough masks and personal protective equipment, regarding uh, having nursing home assessments of the outbreak, regarding testing facilities. In fact, uh, in order to get into the Capitol, both my wife and myself who were COVID recovered, we had to go to an army tent at the very north part of the Texas Capitol building. It's a big campus. And then we had to go through mandatory testing and sit there waiting for a COVID test. Now, of course, we're COVID recovered. We can neither receive nor give COVID. We are completely immune. There is absolutely no value, no scientific value, not a single shred of common sense that would say that a COVID recovered patient has to undergo testing. But in fact, we did it. We were treated just as if we were susceptible for COVID. We moved into the Capitol building and we sat through this testimony. And so when it came up for Dr. Richard Urso, um, right before that time, the chair of the Senate committee, uh, uh, Senator Kolkhorst had mentioned at a break that her husband, who I imagine is middle-aged, let's say over 50, developed COVID himself and had pulmonary involvement. And she felt so lucky that she had access to early treatment. And she mentioned he was treated with ivermectin and other medications. And so Dr. Urso got up and was very erudite and he covered not only uh, the evidence uh, against masking, uh, the evidence against um, uh, uh, unnecessary testing, the evidence against asymptomatic spread of illness, and then the rationale for early treatment. And then you heard a snippet of my testimony and the listeners can go to a link which will give the full uh, testimony. Dr. Urso was 16 minutes. I was closer to uh, 20 minutes. And um, what came out of this, uh, the thought that I had in my mind, but I didn't want to you know, fully expose uh, the chair 
of the committee and the rest of the members, but the, the thought that came into my mind is, does one have to be a chairwoman of a Texas Senate committee to get early treatment? What about our underprivileged uh, uh, citizens in the all the neighborhoods, the, the, the more impoverished neighborhoods, people where fa large families live together in Texas, more than 50% of people in our state and in your state speak Spanish as a primary language. Does, what is one, does one have to be privileged to get early treatment? And what are we doing as American citizens uh, and as leaders in healthcare where our standard of care for COVID, a potentially fatal diagnosis, is to do nothing, to do absolutely nothing, offer no treatment, offer no medical advice, offer no access to research, offer no follow-up, literally to sit there and say that the action plan is for you to stay at home as long as you possibly can, and when you can't breathe anymore, report to a hospital. I have to tell you, when you try to explain that to people, if we said this was cancer, or heart disease, or some other medical illness, any person, any person with any reasonable sense would say that's unacceptable. Well, it's totally unacceptable, and it's totally 180 degrees from anything we have ever done in the modern era of medicine. In fact, even going back to Hippocrates' time, they didn't do that. The, the goal was to intervene with whatever healing and therapeutic modalities were available. The goal of the physician, the art and the science as it evolved of medicine has always been to help people to the best of our ability and judgment and to do so as quickly as we could. I, I just feel like that for this last year, I've lived in an alternate universe. It's so obvious to me that medicine has failed in our fundamental duty to the patient to treat them to the best of our ability. My own internal medicine physician, when I ask him, now, of course, I've been working with the COVID uh, coalition and task force of early frontline doctors since last February, 2020. But I, when I asked my own internist in June, what would he do if I got COVID? He said, oh, I don't treat COVID. I send them to the emergency room if they're sick enough. <laughs> you could have knocked me over with a feather. It, it, it was mind boggling because he's a very capable internal medicine doc, treats viral illnesses all the time. And if somebody has the flu, many times he'll even give you a prescription for Tamiflu during flu season if you're high risk so that you have it available to start it within the first 48 hours of symptoms. And yet they don't do that for the other viral illness of COVID when we have medicines that work in the first three to five days of symptoms. It's well, truly unbelievable. Could you imagine if uh, you were having a heart attack and you call your primary care doctor and say, listen, I, you know, I think I'm having a heart attack. And the primary care doctor says, well, you know, I don't treat heart attacks. You know, you just never would accept that. You'd say, well, listen, can you make a referral? Uh, you know, can you get me to a cardiologist or tell me what to do? There is a fiduciary responsibility that if a doctor feels as if 
uh, or a physician assistant and a nurse practitioner, remember there's a broad uh, provider community out there that when they feel that they are not capable or competent or comfortable in treating an illness for them to appropriately escalate care. And what's not happening, happening is that escalation of care. So in my uh, preparation for the Texas Senate testimony, I consulted the Association of American Physician and Surgeons, the executive director, and I got a listing of 35 different treatment centers in the state of Texas. And uh, those treatment centers have a lot of experience in treating outpatients with COVID-19. So it's incumbent upon each and every doctor and each and every patient, anybody listening to this broadcast today to have a plan. And this illness is so pervasive. Uh, we all know that the vaccines don't stop the illness completely. And we should be prepared that should be more COVID-19 cases that will arise, that they should have a plan. How do they escalate care uh, and not get a situation where they don't seek care? And believe it or not, many patients seek no care. They actually are under the, um, the viewpoint that this is an untreatable illness. Many patients get handed the test result, they go home, they contact no one. They don't reach out for any care whatsoever. And then when they get to the point where they can't breathe, they push the panic button and go to the hospital. I've seen it over again. That's right. And one of the, that's one of the reasons that you and I were involved in writing the patient's guide to early home treatment, with, which is being distributed free through the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. And you and I were very involved in that project, did a lot of work on it. And the, it, it's been disseminated around the world as a free e-booklet. Listeners, you can go to covidpatientguide.com and print out the free e-booklet to do exactly as Dr. McCullough has just suggested. Get your plan in place because COVID is a viral illness, similar in some ways to the flu. It may be around a while. Okay, we don't need to live in fear. Have a plan. Know what the early treatment is. Print it out. Keep the booklet in your medical records and know what your options are. But this has all been suppressed. I, I come back to a, a question that's been nagging at my mind this whole time. Has there been an intent to do harm, to do harm financially to our economy, to do harm politically in an election year, to do harm in denying treatment and pushing a profitable, quite lucrative vaccine with its own set of risk? And as you say, even with the vaccine, even when it reduces the severity of the illness, it doesn't prevent people from getting sick and we still need to treat people. And we come back to the question, why and what is going on that there is intentional suppression of information on early treatment at the federal, state, and media level? Well, let's just pick up on that first part of the comment about uh, the guide and uh, its utility. Uh, in uh, my conversations with uh, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, the estimates are that guide has been viewed in the hands of at least 500,000 individuals. Um, I had conversations with the leadership at AAPS in preparation for my testimony, 
And we have a good reason to believe that that guide has been viewed and used at least 500,000 times, if not more. Uh, and as it's passed from individual to individual, I think that treatment guide uh, by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons uh, had a big impact in what we saw in the final quarter of last year, which was the simultaneous drop in new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. That's the first time that's happened in the pandemic. And I've rationalized as an epidemiologist, the only way that could have happened is, uh, uh, is a real push on early treatment. And I imagine the IMS data on the oral drugs that we use, including hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, prednisone, doxycycline, azithromycin, uh, the anticoagulants, I think those will all show a surge in the final quarter of the year. Now, the, the, the scientific basis for the guide, including the original paper uh, in the American Journal of Medicine in August 2020, uh, titled The Pathophysiologic Basis and Rationale for Early Ambulatory Treatment, and the follow-up paper in Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine in December of 2020, titled uh, Sequenced Early Multidrug Therapy for COVID-19. Both of those papers at their respective journals are the most downloaded papers for those journals in the last year. And in fact, they may go on to be the most downloaded in the history of those journals. They're on track to of evidence that there is thirst and there is hunger knowledge uh, uh, out there that people want to learn more. Doctors do want to learn more about early ambulatory treatment and learn more. And uh, it's a very important goal that we have, I think, as a group to bring information and knowledge to individuals. And just to finish out on the Senate testimony, uh, we learned uh, a day afterwards from Senator Bob Hall that legislation had been written for the state of Texas and hopefully will be formally proposed and voted on that would provide information to patients on treatment options when they're given a COVID-19 positive test that will end this problem of a vacuum of information and having patients be handed their fatal diagnosis uh, with no other information. Well, I think that is a major accomplishment because that would then be the first state in the country that was giving out treatment information at the point of diagnosis of a COVID positive test. Uh, that's staggering to me that we are now a year into this pandemic Literally, the anniversary of the declaration of the pandemic was March 11th, 2021, one year since it was declared. And at this moment, we still don't have patients being given a diagnosis test result, a positive, and any information on treatment, as you pointed out. That would be a real first, and that's been urgently needed for quite some time. So again, it... it comes back to the fact that I think people need to be asking the question, what, what is happening that so much treatment information is simply blocked from the public? And we also, you were talking with um, another physician recently about the fact that Merck has had a drug that could be useful for early treatment but the FDA and the NIH have been slow walking this. Could you tell us more about that? Why would they slow walk a drug that could help this illness? 
Well, over the course of the last year, I published a series of opinion editorials in The Hill, which is a political journal and uh, was a regular contributor actually on COVID-19. One of the uh, op-eds that I published was uh, the great gamble on the vaccine. Indeed, what a gamble it was from a um, a health research uh, and policy perspective. And then I published one on what I call the three gears of Operation Warp Speed. And when it became known that the virus was going to be amenable to a vaccine, we saw basically almost all treatment initiatives dropped, as you uh, mentioned in the opener, that uh, we saw clinical trials stopped administratively early for no reason. Even when it looked like a, a treatment was emerging with a therapeutic benefit, we saw this countless times with hydroxychloroquine and now with ivermectin. We saw um, of interest, we saw drugs like an oral drug from Merck, an oral drug from Sanofi, and then an oral drug from uh, Fujisawa in uh, Japan, which actually favipiravir, which is used in multiple countries outside the United States, we saw all of those drugs slow walked through the uh, NIH and the FDA. And what I mean by slow walked is uh, when a drug is proposed uh, for treatment, it has to have a sponsor. So we actually have to have uh, a drug company involved in the, in the advancement of the uh, protocol we have to give the federal government a guarantee that that company can deliver millions and millions of doses. And so between the FDA and the NIH, the sponsor and the investigator gets bounced back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it can be months between these meetings before there's finally some decision that a program is gonna become part of what's called the ACTIVE trials. And that's uh, all capitals, A-C-T-I-V there. Let's pause here for a brief break, and we will be right back. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm gonna tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called shoptotheright.com. And it's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses 
that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses, as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together, and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. The silent majority has spoken. We say, let the silent voices be heard. You can be the voice of change. Contact our producer at libertyatamericaoutloud.com. libertyatamericaoutloud.com. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm on Voice of a Nation. And today we're talking with Dr. Peter McCullough, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and internal medicine specialist in Dallas, Texas, and a world leader in COVID early treatment at home, as well as COVID research and the medical studies. As an epidemiologist, he's evaluated data coming in from around the world. So today we have the benefit of his expert testimony from the Senate, which we played earlier, and that was in Texas. And also we'll provide you a link to his U.S. Senate testimony in November 2020. So welcome back, Dr. McCullough. And you were talking before the break about the slow walking of therapeutic agents that could have been helpful in the pandemic to treat sick people while we waited for a vaccine to be developed. So would you elaborate on that? Well, we can just make the observation that here we are a year into this uh, and we don't have a single drug that's been developed through Operation Warp Speed, a single oral drug that a patient can take at home to prevent hospitalization and death. And this is a, a product of having all available resources. So the National Institutes of Health, the US FDA, it was all hands on deck. This was a Manhattan project for COVID-19 and they've batted as zero. It really is stunning. There has not been a single oral drug. We could have done very rapid trials of available oral drugs, or we could have brought in other oral drugs that are utilized outside the United States with a rapid program. But the cumbersomeness of the NIH and the FDA uh, and the, the slowness in which the reviews occurred uh, and what the sponsors had to go through it's enormously frustrating. Even big sponsors that make oral anticoagulants are now being slow walked on their uh, outpatient oral trials program. Uh, the, uh, incredibly, the uh, National Institutes of Health has no central hotline or research for uh, uh, you know, access to research uh, where patients are given access to research when they're handed a COVID diagnosis. So we've had this big emphasis on testing, 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 but then doing nothing with the test result. We've had uh, uh, all the federal resources marshaled through Operation Warp Speed. We've batted a zero on oral therapies. What's moved forward are a few things. There's been some treatments in the hospital. Okay, that's fine. And then there's been some high-tech 
expensive pre-purchased antibody infusions available. One is uh, a bemolivimab by Lilly and the other one is a combined product from Regeneron. Those are available at hospitals in the United States. Some of them, no one knows which one. And uh, they are available by a doctor's order. I've ordered them with a simple phone call, but incredibly, uh, there is no resource. There's never any media updates. There's no FAQs on this. Uh, patients, when they're handed their test result, aren't even uh, made aware of these antibody infusions. Uh, a lot of doctors don't know about them. A lot of doctors don't prescribe them. And so here we have the only high-tech product that came out of Operation Warp Speed that has been emergency use authorization approved for outpatients with COVID-19, and the products are sitting on the shelf. Which it's just stunning. Again, it's as if there is this huge black hole between lockdowns and mask mandates to control contagion and seeing vaccines as the only form of immunity, ignoring natural immunity developed in, with recovery from COVID and ignoring the natural immunity that comes as people have a mild illness and recover and contribute to herd immunity naturally, there has been, it's a black hole. And we've never seen that before. I, I just find that there is nothing we can turn to in the media. In fact, those of us, and there are many of us who have made a real effort to provide educational materials that were medically sound, that were carefully researched, and made videos and we put them up on many websites and social media platforms and they were taken down. And that goes back to my, what's nagging in the back of my mind. There has to have been some orchestrated planned decision that treatment, treatment void would be allowed in spite of the fact that it did harm because we've never seen anything in the course of modern medicine, certainly not in my career, and where this type of blackout on early treatment has been so across the board. And I contrast that, I've been in medicine long enough to have been around at the time the AIDS pandemic was unfolding and the, the AIDS situation was an entirely different mindset. We were, I was actually in Baltimore and Johns Hopkins around that time. And we were actually working full bore to try and find medicines that were available. Now it happened at the time that Dr. Fauci, the AIDS activists were quite upset with him because he was blocking the use of an older antibiotic for treatment of pneumocystis pneumonia, which was killing a lot of AIDS patients. And, and at that time, we had a huge outcry among the AIDS activists and AIDS patients across the country. They were the ones who drove the response and AIDS approach became a multi-drug sequence protocol, a cocktail, so to speak, which is exactly the model that you developed with your international team over the course of the spring of 2020 and published in August, and it's still sitting there unused. It, they're two entirely different responses to two very serious lethal viral illnesses. 
So, so let's develop this out a little bit. If it was just a dark wave of pessimism and despair, and if we really have um, no interest in treatment and, and just kind of a block on any information on treatment, well, why do we have, then why don't we have no interest in the vaccine? Why isn't there just a total block on the vaccine? If we have the emergency use authorization mechanism in the United States, now that's not FDA approval. People need to understand that. EUA means that a product uh, fills a void out there and that instead of getting nothing, that the FDA says that this product can be used. It's not FDA approved. EUA means it's not FDA approved. It means that safety and efficacy have not met the grade of the FDA. And it means that the companies can't advertise. There's no advertising for EUA products. If that's the case, then why are the EUA, Lilly and Regeneron antibodies never mentioned in the media? Why is there no FAQs on this? Why is this not featured in medical updates to doctors through their medical organizations or their hospital administrations? Why is if these EUA products don't exist and at the same time there is wild, unbridled, incessant uh, promotion of mass vaccination? These are both EUA products, the vaccines and the, and the therapeutic antibodies I have, the, have the same approval mechanism in the United States. Why is the response so different for these medical products? I, I think that's an extremely important question. And what, what has been bothering me as I've been talking with patients, a number of my patients contact me to ask for an individualized risk benefit discussion about the vaccine in view of their medical history, which I'm happy to do. That's my responsibility to do. Others have been swayed by family members and by the media and by uh, local pressure or their employer pressure to get the vaccine. And then at a follow-up appointment will mention, oh, I got the vaccine. I wanted to protect my elderly mother or I wanted to protect my family. The mindset that people are being given is that the vaccines prevent them from being infected, prevent them from spreading it, and confer protection for others around them. Now, I would like for you to address those questions because uh, I have concerns about the fact that I think people are being misled. Well, let's talk about the benefits of the vaccine. And so uh, a common mantra we'll hear from uh, Dr. Fauci and others is that we have to lead with the science. We have to follow the science. So let's do that. The science of the vaccines, let's just take uh, the three major manufacturers of Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J and ask ourselves, remember the vaccine, one is vaccinated with the Pfizer, Moderna, it takes one injection and then a follow-up injection. And then there's two months of observation afterwards. So that's a three month period of time. The attack rate, and that is, that is the rate of infection among those with the vaccine or those who got placebo in those trials was less than 1%. Okay, so if the science says from the start that someone wants to get a vaccine and gets it, the attack rate over the next three months is less than 1%, then the science says for all the Americans that have gone out there and gotten the vaccine, there's about a 1% benefit. There's a 1% uh, 
public health benefit of them personally getting the vaccine. That's what the science says. I think the average person thinks they get the vaccine. They think they're getting like a 90% benefit of something. They're not. It's a 1% benefit. Now, some, as you said, have been uh, um, convinced that they can reduce the spread to others. In a British medical journal paper of 11 million Chinese, the Chinese basically have concluded there's no such thing as asymptomatic spread. So it's a sick person who then spreads it to a susceptible person. That's the reason at my hospital, when we walk in, we don't do nasal testing. We have lots of sick patients in the hospital. We check for a temperature and we just don't want a sick worker to go give the virus to a vulnerable patient. So uh, asymptomatic spread fundamentally doesn't occur or it must occur at an extraordinarily low level. So that doesn't, uh, that's not a powerful argument. The personal benefit is less than 1% over the next three months and maybe another 1% over the next three months. Don't forget COVID is going down. So the public health benefit will progressively go down. So there is a very little getting the vaccine, very little benefit. And individuals, I think the benefit has been grossly overstated or it's overthought of. And obviously the vax is wildly promoted. I mean, wildly promoted. And the most disturbing thing about the vaccine was announced on December 10th by the uh, BBC and that's called the Trusted News Initiative. And the Trusted News Initiative stated uh, overtly that any negative information regarding the vaccine was gonna be filtered out of the media that there would be no way to find out about any safety concerns of the vaccine. So the single greatest issue that patients really should ask their doctors about is about vaccine safety. And, and here there's really an alarming uh, story developing. In the United States and worldwide now, we are far beyond a thousand reported vaccine deaths. So when someone uh, gets a vaccine, if someone is concerned that they subsequently died, that they can go into the CDC database if they know the patient's identifiers and then report the death into the CDC. Well, I've reviewed these deaths on the CDC database and read the narratives, at least some of them, and most commonly they're reported by nursing home workers who've vaccinated and then watched the patient die over the next few hours or the next few days and they reported. And honestly, for most cases, it's either a fatal allergic reaction or it's a fatal vaccine reaction to the uh, febrile immune reaction that happens to the um, vaccine. But, but I can tell you, this is far beyond any tolerance that we'd have for a new drug. You know, typically at five or six deaths, that's unexplained, the drug would get a black box warning. We get to 20, 30, 40 deaths, that, that uh, new medication is off the market. Here we're beyond a thousand deaths with the uh, censorship, the public doesn't know about it, and then here we go, death after death. Well, it was announced two days ago that in now in 12 countries in Europe um, that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been pulled. Initially, it was thought to be just uh, a couple batches of the vaccine. It's been simply pulled altogether. So other countries are uh, have, have reached their tolerance of uh, vaccine harm, which is primarily death. I mean, that's the most serious safety concern we have. And in the United States, you don't see any alarm bells going off. There hasn't been a single report in any major media regarding death. And the average person who's getting the vaccine has no idea that they could die in the next few days after getting the vaccine. Well, I'm seeing that in my practice with the patients who've gotten the vaccine. 
and then just casually mentioned to me that they did it, none of them, not a single person has had any knowledge of the potential risk ahead of time, nor has any single person I've spoken with in my patient appointments have any idea that there have been deaths reported with the vaccines. I find that staggering because we have a black box warning on something as simple as estrogen therapy, which I've been doing for 35 years for patients. And that black box warning contradicts a lot of the safety data that we have from international studies. But nevertheless, it's there. And patients are very aware of that. It was certainly heavily promoted in the media. And yet we have more deaths associated with the vaccine in the first two months than anything that had been reported at the time with the safety concerns over estrogen. And yet you hear not one word of that in the media. Well, even if um, there was a feeling that this is such a terrible virus and that we have to do something from a public health perspective, in my view, uh, our agencies, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, the White House Task Force, they should have immediately had a panel of independent physicians start reviewing these cases, adjudicating these cases for causality, and coming up with recommendations for risk mitigation. And risk mitigation is some methods to try to reduce the hazards of the vaccine. I can tell you what they've done in some countries already, uh, including just north of us in Canada, is they are not allowing people over age 65 to be vaccinated because that's where the deaths have really accrued. And there's been really a lack of uh, uh, risk to benefit uh, data in those patients. I know that for uh, a fact. So here we have a paradox where the greatest risk of mortality with COVID is in our seniors uh, and the greatest risk of the vaccine is in our seniors. And some countries have either just pulled uh, one or more of the vaccine manufacturers off the market, or they've already made their own risk mitigation decisions and are not going to vaccinate seniors. Well, I, I think that's extraordinarily wise. And I'm just um, extremely upset as a physician where I think we, you're right, we have a fiduciary duty. And, and I, I feel I have an ethical and moral duty as well to warn patients of risk. And I think another risk mitigation strategy would be, for example, for primary care physicians to have to send out a uh, letter to their patients and just say, I would like to help you analyze your risk for COVID or the vaccine, and let's have an individual discussion. It can be a 15 or 20 minute appointment, but we need to look at individual risk. I go through that with each of my patients and I talk about their medical history, what their risk factors are for COVID, what their risk factors are if they treat early with COVID versus what are the risk of the vaccine in their particular situation. People have said, well, are you anti-vaccination? Well, no, of course not. I, I've personally gotten, I got the polio vaccine as a kid. I got the smallpox vaccine. I get the tetanus vaccine and keep up with that. So I'm not anti-vaccination. I'm anti-mandatory forcing people to get a, an experimental vaccine without their full informed consent and without any medical evaluation of their risk versus benefit. 
And that's how we've always practiced medicine. I think you're doing that with your patients, aren't you? I am. And of course, I'm besieged by family members contacting me. And like you, I'm not anti-vax. And in fact, I think for individuals uh, between the ages of 50 and probably even up to 75 who are fit and strong, and they have high contact uh, jobs, uh, let's say they're a hairdresser or they're you know, a food service worker, what have you, those individuals uh, should be vaccinated. I have absolutely no problem with that. Now, among the three available vaccines in the United States, uh, uh, Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, uh, Moderna, and uh, J&J, I feel most comfortable with the J&J vaccine because it's a single vaccine. It's on a standard platform that's used for other vaccines. It doesn't have polyethylene glycol. And uh, even though its stated efficacy is less, uh, I would trade less efficacy for more safety. And I think J&J will turn out to be uh, the safer of the vaccines. I'm very concerned with the messaging. I've seen it from uh, Tony Fauci and all the media doctors that say, um, well, you know, should you pick and choose your vaccine or should you just take any one? And the advice is take any one, that this is such an urgent issue, take any one. Remember the public health benefit for the individual is less than 1% for each three month increment. So for a less than 1% benefit, I think patients should choose. They should be very choosy about the vaccine and uh, paying no attention to previous sensitivity to polyethylene glycol I think is, is grossly negligent. If you were to say, are those media doctors and Fauci grossly negligent? I would say yes, that you can't walk a patient who's already sensitized to polyethylene glycol in and get a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Now, what's really disturbing is that uh, the National Institutes of Health, which Dr. Fauci leads and Francis Collins, that they co-own the patent with Moderna. So there is a direct financial conflict of interest now at the government agency level for mass vaccination, at least with one of the manufacturers. And, and I, I don't think the public has any clue about that, nor are they being educated about the polyethylene glycol component. And quite frankly, Dr. McCullough, over the course of my career, I've had hundreds and hundreds of patients who are sensitive to polyethylene glycol, PEG. It's used in many cosmetics. It's used in the many medications and topical creams, for example. That's one of the reasons I had to get some compounded vaginal creams for some of my menopausal patients because they had allergic reactions, most likely to the PEG in it. And the PEG is the component that has been considered the hypothesis by most experts has been that that's the most likely culprit in these massive anaphylactic reactions that can cause death, as well as the more serious allergic reactions that didn't cause death, but caused serious reactions. And patient, patients are not being given any information about that. And so you're right. I think we should be choosing recommending that the patients at least select the one that does not have the PEG and is, as you said, based on the standard platform. Explain what you mean by the standard platform for the vaccine, DNA versus RNA. Right. So uh, the Pfizer Moderna vaccines are naked messenger RNA encapsulated in a, in a liposome and surrounded by polyethylene glycol. So the Pfizer Moderna vaccines are brand new technology 
the messenger RNA goes into all uh, cells in the body and the immune cells, and then the body turns on and produces the dangerous spike protein, uh, that little spiky uh, protein that sticks out of the virus ball. And that's what causes uh, the reaction. It also causes the body's immune reaction uh, to it. Um, but uh, importantly, uh, uh, the polyethylene glycol, the massive production of the spike protein, and these fatal uh, either allergic, immediate allergic reactions and the fatal febrile reactions that are occurring in the uh, frail elderly make me believe these virus, these vaccines are simply too strong for uh, many people at risk. Now the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is on an adenovirus vector. Here it's not a messenger RNA, it's DNA. And that DNA then, uh, a segment of it does go into the cells in the human body. The cells in the human body then transcribe the messenger RNA for the spike protein. And then the same process occurs, but at least the body has a chance in a sense to uh, manage the entire virus coming in. And uh, we know that that technology has been used for vaccination against other illnesses. So I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. Um, but ha having said this, you know, overall, all of these vaccinations are considered emergency use authorization. They haven't gone through two years of safety and testing, uh, safety and efficacy testing. Uh, they are not FDA approved. And right in the consent form, they're considered investigational. And I don't think patients understand what investigational means in terms of the differences in the safety and efficacy evaluations. And that is part of the information that is being suppressed as you and I have encountered with our own educational efforts along with many other people are there. And, and then I come back to the, to the core question, early treatment. Even if they get the vaccine, even if there's a 1% benefit, people still get sick and people need treatment. And that is being ignored. But also what I've been doing with my patients is do a risk benefit comparison of what we know from other countries and the US, you led a study at Baylor on prophylaxis against COVID, for example, with the once a week dosing of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. We know the effectiveness of that. We know the safety of these medicines. To me, that's another option that people need to be informed about, but it's being ignored. Could you tell the audience more about those prophylactic options that can reduce their risk of being infected? Uh, it's uh, a coincidence you mentioned that I just had a patient who I managed for the entire year on once weekly hydroxychloroquine. He, he is about 75, but he's uh, active in his business. He meets people a lot and uh, he couldn't go into lockdown or self-isolation. And uh, he did not contract COVID over a course of a year of once weekly hydroxychloroquine. And the same would be true for ivermectin, although maybe once every five days. Uh, but this is about 90% effective in studies. So it's about as effective as the most effective vaccine. So I managed him for a year and now uh, he just uh, texted me, he did get the J&J &J vaccine. So uh, medical prophylaxis is a good bridge to vaccination if it's needed. Um, but I wanted to uh, update you on an analysis that's been done regarding the public health benefit of um, vaccination. So um, uh, here's a, an analysis, and I, I want to walk you through it uh, quickly. If we assume that we have another, another 100,000 Americans at risk of death in the pandemic, and if all the vaccine trials achieve less than a 1% attack rate, 
and that exists in the community. And uh, if we vaccinated 60 million individuals, only 20% are now susceptible. We're at about 80% immunity in most states. Five million people vaccinated could actually benefit, and the attack rate again is less than 1%. That means that the vaccines would only prevent 12,500 infections in the United States, which the overall mortality is about 1%. And so we, even if we assume the vaccine protects against all the fatal COVID infections that they could get, that means the vaccines uh, at this level would save about 125 lives, 125. If you multiply that uh, times five, and that means accomplishing what Fauci watches, vaccinate everybody who potentially could be vaccinated. It means that we save about 575 lives every two months with the vaccine. We know that early treatment would save 85,000 of those lives at risk right now out of the 100,000. So the vaccine is worth 575, early treatment worth 85,000. It's not even close in terms of what we should be doing. We should be having a laser focus on early treatment. Vaccination is fine in the background, but vaccination should not be our primary strategy in handling the pandemic. Well, that is a brilliant wrap-up analysis, Dr. McCullough. I am very grateful for that, not only for my own practice and my ability to share it with my patients, but our listeners. That's a powerful conclusion. And that's actually what you and I've been doing in our clinical practice of medicine with the focus on doing our best to do no harm, to use the data and apply it to each individual patient to the best of our ability and judgment on a risk benefit analysis. And I hope our listeners will think about the logic and common sense of what we've just presented as two practicing physicians and Dr. McCullough's expertise in evaluating the data the science, the, the accurate information that we all know is there that the public is not getting easy access to. And we hope that you will use this information to make a better informed decision and preserve your health and safety through the COVID pandemic. Thank you for being with us today on Voice of a Nation, Dr. McCullough. Thank you for all of the dedicated work and many, many thousands of hours of leadership and clinical care for your patients. You truly illustrate the art and science of the best of the Hippocratic traditions. And we're grateful for you, grateful for your leadership as well. This is Dr. Lee for America, standing in for Malcolm, signing off for today. This is your life, your health, and your freedom at stake. Get involved, get loud, and don't be afraid to speak up and help make the world around you a better place.